try to help you to look internally at yourself and look for these signs and these evidences that you are, in fact, a follower of Christ. Now, when we talk about these things, that doesn't mean that they will always be, if we were grading it, that they will always be a 10 on the scale. I don't expect any of us could say, as we read through these lists, or if we look at Paul's list of love in 1 Corinthians 13, that all the time we are achieving those things <clears throat> Excuse me, perfectly. But my goal is, number one, for you to see that, in fact, these things are at least present, and hopefully... There is progress being made. I often you hear me say it's not about perfection, but it is about progress. We will never fully arrive this side of heaven to be the person that God wants us to be. But we should be striving for that every day. We should be striving for holiness, striving to be more like Jesus. And so hopefully as a believer, you will see these things in your life and you will see them growing more and more each and every day. So we're only going to read one verse today, so you guys did so good standing up, I won't ask you to stand again for this one, since it's just one short verse, but I will read it to you, and then we'll pray. The Bible says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Father, we thank you again for your word, pray that now you would apply it to our lives and change our lives through it. Father, I pray that you would increase as I decrease, and again, everything that we do here today would point to you and bring you praise, honor, and glory, for it's in the name above all names that we pray and believe. Amen. So, I was thinking about this verse as I was getting the text ready this week, and there's a phrase that I've used before, and you've probably heard this in your life at some point in time, and it goes like this, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Have you ever heard that? Maybe some of you are fortunate enough, I consider myself fortunate enough, to be able to do something every day in my life that I truly love. And when that is a fact, it doesn't mean that pastoring, in my example, is always easy. It doesn't mean that sometimes I don't have days where I think, man, there's got to be something better to do than this. There's got to be something that's easier to do than this. But in the big picture, even though we all have our down days, I love what I do. And I hope you can say that about your job as well. And if not, I hope that maybe you're pursuing an opportunity where you can say that. I know sometimes work is just something we have to do. But if you love what you do, it truly is a blessing. Don't ever take that for granted. A lot of you probably also know this, but maybe a few of you don't. I wasn't always a pastor. Most of you probably know me only as Pastor Chris, but I wasn't always a pastor. I wasn't always a Christian, obviously. And so there was a part of my life before Jesus, as there is with all of you as well. And in uh, uh, my, my journey, so to speak, I was a machinist for 18 years, worked in a factory for 18 years, and it was at that factory where I came to know Christ through the witnessing of a young man, a young maintenance man there. But I was, I was thinking about my life before I became a pastor, and I was thinking about what it was like in that machine shop. And I found this quote by a guy that you all know, Bill Gates. He's fairly successful, got a little bit of money. So I'd say he's done pretty good, at least from a worldly perspective. Now, obviously, he doesn't know Jesus, so he's bankrupt in the big picture. And we pray that he comes to know Christ. But from a worldly perspective, he's pretty successful. And he said this, and it got me thinking about my life in the factory and this message today. He said, I choose a lazy person to do a hard job because a lazy person will find an easy way to do it. It is true. And, and now you might say, well, I don't know about that if... if I can speak from experience in a factory. I don't know about other positions, but in a factory, it's true. At least the factory I worked in. I could tell you, I could sit up here for hours and tell you about the ingenuity of lazy people that I worked with. I mean, they got it down to a science. 
I worked with a guy, so I won't bore you to death, but I ran what's called a, I ran what's called a CNC machine, which is basically a lathe or a mill that's computerized. So you have a code that you put in, and it tells the machine basically what to do. So once the, once the program is proved out and your tool is set, depending on how long that thing's going to run, you may sit in a chair and watch it for hours and just make sure nothing breaks, nothing goes wrong, but you're just sitting there. And so I remember one guy at our work, and on third shift, I'm sorry if you work third shift, you know how it is. First shift and third shift and second shift, they, they tolerate each other, but they don't like each other. And, and third shift is lazy, and first shift is lazy, and they all bicker and say, well, first shift don't do nothing, and second shift does everything, and third shift doesn't, you know, that's how it is. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. This guy on third shift, I'll never forget, he had this thing rigged up. He'd, he'd sit in a chair, if I had a chair, I'd show you, he'd sit in a chair, and he'd put his feet up on the desk, and he tied a string around his pants leg, and he he tied the other end to a two-by-four, and he set it up against the, what's called the bed of the lathe. So when that thing got done cutting, it would pull the board back, which would pull the string, which would pull his leg off the table and wake him up to tell him he had to go change that tool. I kid you not. I kid you not. And that's just the ingenuity of lazy people to find a way to take a job that's already pretty easy for the most part and make it even easier. So Bill Gates is right in that. But as believers, we shouldn't be lazy. We shouldn't be lazy when it comes to the way that we work. Okay? And so this message primarily is going to talk, talk and focus on working for the Lord. But this, this definitely carries over into your secular work life as well. You know, Christians shouldn't be the laziest people in the shop. Which it shouldn't be. Okay? We should be setting the bar. And unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. Okay, but I want us to look at, at the verse today, and I'm going to break it down into three sections as we look at this. So the first part of this verse is, is really kind of difficult to translate. So depending on what version you use, it's probably going to be different from the ESV that I read to you from. My ESV says, do not be slothful in zeal. The King James says, not slothful in business. So that may give us a little bit different of an idea when we first read that. The, the New American Standard says, not lagging behind. So that's pretty literal translation there. Um, and then there's what's called the Living Bible, which is more of a paraphrase. And it says, never be lazy in your work. So I think this is one of those verses where if we read it from several different translations, we get the big picture. If you just read it from one, you may or may not fully understand it. But I think if we take all those, never be lazy in your work, don't lag behind, don't be slothful in business, don't be slothful in your zeal. Putting all that together gives us a pretty good idea of what Paul is trying to tell us in this, uh, this portion of the text. Paul write, wrote to the church, write it, that's bad English. Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, and he says these words in Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. Another thing I found was true in the factory, and, I'm, and I'll admit it of me too, be honest, you don't have to say this out loud. But maybe some days you're a bit lazy at work until the boss comes through. And then all of a sudden, man, you're, you're dusting and wiping and mopping or typing or whatever you're doing. Don't we sometimes make it look a little better when the boss or the supervisor comes through? Or, in our, again, going back to the factory, if a big shot was coming in, the CEO or something, we'd spend the whole week cleaning. We wouldn't run apart. Didn't matter, they was losing thousands of dollars because machines were sitting there, but by golly, the shop was spotless. So for two seconds, this guy could walk through. He didn't care. He just, wanted to, he just wanted to know the bottom line. But 
the shop was pretty, everybody's happy, and then we had to work seven days a week to make up because we didn't do anything all week. So that was, we lost both ways, right? But either way, I think we're guilty sometimes of trying to impress people in the way that we work. And Paul says we shouldn't do that. We should always work hard. If you're already working hard, you don't have to try to impress anybody. You're already doing it, right? And if we're working for the Lord, our mentality ought to be, I'm trying to please God. I don't care what anybody thinks about my work. Um, so here's some things. I tried to jot down a few of these. Here's some things, and you probably have a list that you can make too. If you've worked in a job for any amount of time, you've probably heard coworkers, and maybe again, maybe you've said these things yourself, because we all get aggravated at work sometimes and frustrated with things. Management often has no clue about what actually takes place out on the floor, right? The, you got the button pushers uh, and all that stuff that don't know what's going on down here on the floor. So I've heard these things, and I probably said them myself. I'm not appreciated, so I'm not going to work hard anymore. I'm just not appreciated, not going to do it. I'm just going to take it easy like everybody else. Here's another one. Everybody else is lazy, I'm going to be lazy. Everybody else is sitting there doing nothing, I'm going to sit there and do nothing. I don't get paid enough to do any extra. I don't get paid enough. Here's the problem with that. You sat in the human resources office and you agreed to the pay. I mean, it may be unfair, you may deserve more, but nobody put a gun to your head and said, you've got to take this amount of pay. You knew going in what you was going to make. Again, now they may dump more work on you, and all of a sudden you're doing a lot more, and then I agree, that's a situation that needs to be addressed. But if you go in at a rate, and then you get in there and you're like, man, I don't deserve, I deserve more than this, well, you should have negotiated or you know, said something beforehand. So none of those are excuses for us to be lazy, all right? And here's the one I've heard in church. A lot over the years. I did my time. Let someone else step up. And I didn't know it was a prison sentence. Like you put in your time and then you get paroled and you're done. Like the first time I heard that in church, I was like, oh man, I did, really? How, how long does a pastor have to, how long is a pastor in prison for? Like 25 years and I'm out or what is the deal here, you know? So, I mean, it just kind of shocked me to hear that. But I've heard that a lot over the years. And listen, I understand as you get older, there's physically things that you no longer can do. We understand that. I don't, we've talked about that. But I don't think your work for the Lord ever ends. As long as you're here, He's got a purpose for you. Now, you may say, I don't really know what that is, or I, I mean, I, I'd like to do more and I can't. But I don't think we ever should say, well, I'm retired from serving the Lord now. You know, I don't think that's in the Word of God that we get to retire from serving Him. So I go back to what I said at the beginning. If you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. If you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew and also in the Old Testament, there's a portion of Scripture that says the greatest command that we can follow is to love the Lord our God with our, all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second greatest commandment, he, Jesus said, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you do those two things, you've fulfilled all the law. So we're not under the law, we're under grace. But when we receive Jesus, we still have a standard to live by. And so the law still applies in some senses as far as how we're supposed to live. But here's the thing, if you love God and you love your neighbor, you'll keep all the law. You can't commit adultery on your wife if you love your neighbor. If you love your wife like Christ loves the church. You can't covet somebody if you love them like Christ and you're happy for them. You can't sin against God if you're loving Him in the way that you ought to. Do you see how love fulfills the law? If we obey those two things, we will be free in the most part from committing the sins that 
are always nipping at our heels, so to speak. So here's what I want to say to you. You know clearly what you're supposed to do. Just two main things. Love God, love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Everybody is your neighbor. God created us all in His image. All of us ought to love one another, even our enemies. But here's the thing about us. God created us different. All of us have different interests. We have different talents. And we have different loves. We have different things that we love. Maybe for you, you love children. Maybe for some of you, you love music. Maybe some of you love working with your hands. Maybe some of you love cooking. We could go down the list. But regardless, if your command is to love God and love your neighbor, and He's made you with certain things in your life that you love, guys, if you'll combine those two things, you will find your purpose in life. If you love to cook, and you love Jesus, and you love your neighbor, there's your ministry. You make meals and you take care of people with that and you make sure that they're cared for and you can bring in treats to encourage them and put Bible verses on them. If you love kids, you can serve in the church. There's so many places where children's ministry is needed. You can go out there. There's families all over the world that don't have a mom and a dad that don't love those kids. Tiffany, a school teacher and other school teachers in this church, could tell you story after story of kids that just need love. If you love kids... You don't have enough love in you to pour out to take care of all those kids. And if you love them and love God, there's your ministry. You see how easy it really is? Take what's already in you that God has placed in you, your love, your passion, and use it for His glory and use it to love your neighbor. And there's your ministry. If you don't know what your purpose is, I guarantee if you go home today and in five minutes write down those things and put them together, you now have your purpose. But the question is, now that you know, what will you do with it? It's not enough to know it. You have to do something with it. You have to be willing to use it. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, the Apostle Paul again writes these words. He says, by the grace of God. So this wasn't something that he did or deserved. This was a sheer gift. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And he says, his grace towards me was not in vain. Can you imagine God giving you all sorts of gifts and talents and abilities and you waste it? Paul said, not me. The gift, the grace that I received was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Who was he talking about? The other apostles. That's a bold statement because they did some big things. Paul said, but because of the grace of God, I realized how good he'd been to me and nobody was going to outwork me. God gave me so much, I was going to pour out my life to give him back everything I could. Man, that's an attitude right there that will change the world. He said, by the grace of God... Toward me, I was not in vain. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Here's here's the Chris Theobald paraphrase. God was too good to me to be lazy. That's what Paul's saying. God's been too good to me. He's given me too much to sit on the sidelines and not do anything with it. That's what Paul was saying. And I'll say it to us. With so many needs... All around us. And I'm not saying you're all lazy by any stretch of imagination. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying when we look around at the amount of needs in our world today and even in our church, how can we possibly be idle? How could we possibly sit by and, as Paul says, be slothful in zeal? So then he goes on in the second part of our verse here and he's going he's to kind of go a different direction. He says, we ought to be fervent in spirit. Do you see that in the second part of verse 11? Be fervent in spirit. What does that word fervent mean in the Greek? It means to bubble up or to boil. 
I was making spaghetti the other day for, for dinner, and, and you've probably done this before. You put the pot on the stove, you turn it up, and you stand there and stare at it, right? A watch pot never boils. Isn't that the old saying? So I, guess what? I go in the pantry to get some stuff, and all of a sudden, you know what I heard? I heard this noise, and the lid's doing this, you know, shaking all over, and I grab it real quick just before the water spills out. I heard it before I ever saw it. But when I heard it, I knew I didn't even have to look. I knew what was happening. That ought to be a picture of the Christian life. Like before they even see us, before they ever come to K. Russo Baptist Church, they ought to have heard about us. They ought to have heard about us. They ought to say, man, there's something going on at that church. God is doing something with there with those people. I don't know what is happening, but people are happy. People are excited. People are on fire for God. People are getting saved and baptized. There's kids coming into the church. There's adults coming into the church, and I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. There's too many dead churches, and people walk in, and they say, well, I can go to the funeral home and get this and walk right back out. We ought not to be like a bunch of dead corpses gathered together. Jesus Christ has given us life. We ought to act alive. You guys did a good job of that this morning. At least externally, you got up moved a little bit. I'm proud of you. That encourages me. And I'm not saying that that's the only way you can worship. I'm not saying if you don't stand up and raise your hand and hoot and holler that you're lost. But I will say this. It is an encouragement. Because sometimes it's hard. If you ever spoke in public, you have to gauge the temperature of the room. You just do. I mean, maybe some of you have never spoken public. I certainly never had either. But when, when, you're, when you're preaching your heart out or you're giving a speech that you're passionate about and that's all you see, you start thinking. And then your mind's got two thoughts going at once. You're thinking about what you're supposed to say, but you're also thinking, am I that bad? Are, 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 should I call 911? Are they dead? I mean, you don't know what to do. Right? So some, uh, don't just do it to do it, but a little amen, a little shout, a little hoot, man. I'll take all. I might run. I might run aisles, guys. I mean, it just does. It encourages your pastor and it encourages the youth leaders, the deacons, anything. If you show up and get excited and say, man, I want to get involved, man, it gets people excited. And that spreads. It spreads. That kind, that's contagious. If you get excited, somebody else will get excited. You can't sit in a room with Miss Rosie and not get excited. You just don't. She just brings that out. Or if nothing else, she shows you that it's okay. You might be a little bit introverted and say, man, I don't want to get up and be loud like Rosie, but it's okay, you know, it's okay. She's doing that and it, it, and it lets you relax a little bit. We come in sometimes when we're so stiff and rigid, you know. I think we've been trained. And, and there's a difference between being reverent and just allowing yourself to worship God, right? And so that's a whole different sermon. But my point is, people ought to be able to see it. But they ought to hear about it and they ought to know about it before they ever see it. Because our lives ought to just exude that kind of joy and that kind of excitement and that kind of hope. Listen, we're not always walking around with a big smile on our face happy. Life gets hard for us too, right? But even when we grieve, we don't grieve like those that have no hope. We have a hope that gets us through the darkest of days. We know that as believers, this is as bad as it gets for us. And our hearts break for those that don't know Jesus because this is as good as it's going to get for you. Think about that. You think the world's bad right now, eternity's going to be worse, way worse, without Jesus. And you don't have to enter into it without Him. He gives Himself freely to you. So I thought about that. What does it look like to be boiling and to be bubbling and to be excited for God? Probably all of us experienced it a little bit when we first got saved, because, man, you're on fire. When you first get saved, you're on fire. But over time, for whatever reason, for just about everybody, that seems to dwindle, seems to kind of lose a little bit, doesn't it? And so I thought a little bit about this. 
And I guess here's my, my illustration, and it may not be the best one. But most ladies, most ladies, I'm not lumping you on one category, but most ladies aren't humongous sports fans. Now, some are, and usually the ones that are, it's more of a local thing. Like we cheer, they'll cheer for their Bengals, they'll cheer for their Reds. If they're a backslider, they'll cheer for the Steelers. But regardless, <laughs> regardless, most ladies, most ladies aren't humongous sports fans until they have kids or grandkids. Game over. Game over at that point. You got the sticker on the back of the van with the little kid with the ball bat or the soccer ball or the basketball, football, whatever it is. You got t-shirts, baseball mom, and the foam finger that you're holding up, number one, little Johnny, I'm number one, right? And it doesn't matter. 110 degrees or minus 30, it doesn't matter if the first game's at 3 in the morning or the last game's at midnight, you are on the stands climbing the backstop, you are excited about little Billy out there playing ball. Why? You love him. You want to support and encourage him. Who wouldn't? Absolutely, it's a joy. They can be terrible. They're out in right field picking flowers and who knows what. You don't care. That's my boy. Pictures and everything, you know you're excited they're terrible. But it doesn't matter. What if we had that kind of excitement for one another in church? Like, you might get up here and sing and not be great. I might get up here and preach and not be great. You might make a dish of food and it tastes terrible. But we still encourage one another because we love one another. We just love one another that much, right? You do stuff for your kids that you wouldn't do for anybody else. But I think we ought to do stuff for one another that we wouldn't do for anyone else either. And we will if we really love God and we love one another. Same thing's true with dads. Like, I've seen the biggest, toughest, meanest men on earth turn into a whole different thing when that little girl comes up and says, Dad, can I fix your hair? Can I paint your nails? They're, paint away, darling. It doesn't matter. Because they love that little girl. That's daddy's girl. It doesn't matter. They put the makeup on you. You don't care at that moment. Because you love them. Man, that, uh, that's how it ought to be for us when we love Jesus and we love people. In Ephesians 6, 7, again, Paul, I'm quoting him a lot today, but it says, and this is from the NIV because I just like how it brings it out. He says, serve wholeheartedly with everything in you. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not people. Again, if God is first, that doesn't mean that we don't care about people. We will. Because if Jesus is first, He loved people beyond anything else. And so will we. It flows downhill, naturally. That love will carry over. And here's what I want you to take out of this verse. In church, there's always, all, you know this, I'm up here, Jeff's up here, George is up here, whoever, whoever's standing up here, sometimes we're always asking for help. We're always asking for volunteers. You think, oh my goodness, here he goes again. There's a sign-up sheet out there for something else. How much does this guy want out of us? But here's the thing, guys. I think, in, I think what we often do wrongly is we only hear the task. We need help in the nursery. I'm just using this as an example. We need help in the nursery and we think, that is a task that I don't want to do. No, thank you. End of story, right? But I, I just want to challenge you with something. What if you didn't just hear me or whoever say the task? What if instead your first response or your first thought was, how can I love Jesus and how can I love others through this need? Don't just put it as whatever the need is. Because again, you do it for your kids. Dad would do it for his daughter. Mom would do it for the boys. 
in the church, we often view the task and we say, I, I won't do that. I, I'm just not going to do that. And maybe physically, for some reason, whatever, you can't do it. I understand that. But I think we're wrong when we just look at the task and say, now, scratch that off the list. That's not for me. What if we looked at it first and said, how could I possibly love Jesus and love people through my willingness to just take a, a role in this, to do a part of this? Because when, when you first got saved, you wanted to tell everybody, didn't you? Like if, if you got saved and came to church and they, they put a sheet out there that says, we need somebody to clean toilets for Jesus, use the first one out there signing up. It didn't matter. You just wanted to do something for Jesus. And you'd do anything. You'd do anything to serve Him. Be fervent in spirit, he says. What excites you? What gets you boiling? It ought to be not the task, but it ought to be your love for God and your love for His people. And if you look at it that way, maybe the task won't be the most exciting thing or the first thing on your list, but when you get to serve God and help others, it, it, the task kind of takes a back seat. Do you see what I'm saying? So just a way to view that a little bit differently. And finally, I want you to look at the last part of verse 11. And depending on what translation you have, it may say this, only pastors should serve the Lord. Anybody got that one? Okay, how about this one? Some Christians ought to serve the Lord. Anybody say that? Mine says three words. Serve the Lord. Period. No exclusions. No fine print. Serve the Lord. I'm going to close with this. And I, I, I want you to hear this. This is important. I think this is important. It may or may not change your thinking on stuff. This verse and probably 150 other ones are badly translated no matter what Bible you have. I don't care if you got the King James, I don't care if you got the ESV, NIV, it doesn't matter. Almost every Bible translation that I have read gets this wrong. You say, well, it's only three words, how can it be wrong? I want to show you, and I want you to take this to heart. This is important. Paul starts this very letter of Romans in Romans 1.1. Let me read to you how he starts this letter. Paul, a what? A servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul says, I'm a servant of Christ. That's what your English translations say there, right? Now, here's the thing. If you have rights, Americans, we love our rights and our freedoms. If you have rights and someone comes to you and says, I would really like you to do this or that. In that moment, do you not have a choice? Can you not say sure? Or can you not say no? Or the Southern Baptist way of saying no, I'll pray about it. Right? You have a choice. If you think that you're just a servant, a volunteer, and someone asks you to do something, you have a decision that you can make with really no repercussions, no consequences behind it. But let me ask you this, and I know there's plenty of men and women in this church that served in the military. Thank you for that. But when you sign up to join the military, what do you do with your rights? They're gone. They're gone for the betterment of the country and those that you serve with. When you get into the military and they ask you to do something, do you have a choice of yes, no? No. I mean, you do, I guess, but are there, are there going to be major consequences to your choice of not following what's commanded? Of course there will be. So, here's where I'm going with this. And this is why 
whatever Bible you have is wrong. It's just translated. I won't say, shouldn't say wrong. It's, it's mistranslated. Let me put it that way. All through the Bible, Jesus has a title that he's called by, and that's Lord. A lot of times it says Christ Jesus our Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. You've seen that, right? L-O-R-D, Lord. That's the Greek word kurios. It means master. It means someone that is in charge over everything and everybody. Jesus is Lord. He is over your life. He is in control of your life. In your English Bible, including the verse that we're looking at today, the verse that I just read and many others, the English translations use the word servant. Some, some Bibles even went so far as they made up a new word that doesn't even exist in the Greek called bondservant to try to tone this down. Those are bad translations, guys. They just are. Do you want to know what this word here, which is doulos, do you want to actually know what that word means? There it is. We, English translations have tried to remove that because of the connotations that come behind that word. But that is exactly what that word means. These verses, this verse that we're reading today ought to say, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, you are a slave to the Lord. Paul's verse from Romans 1.1 should say, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. You're not just a servant. You are a servant. That is what is expected of you is to serve. But you serve because you are a slave to the Master. And the Master is the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is not a cruel, unloving taskmaster. He is a loving and kind God who has purchased you. You are a slave to sin before you got saved. Understand that Jesus didn't put you into slavery. He brought you out of slavery. He brought you out of the slavery of the world and now makes you slaves to righteousness, the Bible says. You see, there's a change there. There's a change in the relationship and a change that happened. There's a lexicon, which actually is a tool that you can use if you don't know Greek, and it will help you to figure out what words mean. One of the greatest lexicons on the market is from a guy named Kittel, K-I-T-T-E-L. Listen to what it says about this word doulos. If, if you think maybe there's a little confusion or maybe they got it wrong, maybe the translators were right, here's what he says. There is no need to trace the history of that word doulos. There is no need to discuss the meaning of the word. It has never meant anything in any usage but slave. That's just a poor translation. Servant is wrong. You are a slave of Jesus Christ. You just are. When you gave your life to Him, He became your Lord. He became your Master. And if you truly want to serve Him, it's not optional. When He gives a command, it is meant to be followed. But we live as though we have a choice and Jesus is okay with our choice. If He says, go out in the world and preach the Gospel, and we say, nah, I'm too busy. I don't, I'll let the pastor share about Jesus. That's a sin. You're sinning against the one that saved you. And just if you don't see this, the very last chapter of the very last book of the Bible is Revelation chapter 22. Very last chapter. So this is at the end of everything. Tribulation has happened. Millennium has happened. Judgment has happened. New heaven and new earth have come down. We are at the end of the road. We are in eternity. Revelation 22.3 says, no longer will there be any accursed thing, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Bad translation. What does that really say? His slaves will worship Him. We are in heaven, glorified. Judgment is over with. New heaven and new earth. And the Bible still calls us His slaves. Why? 
Because He's redeemed us and He will always be our Master. He will always be Lord. We're never going to reach a place where we are over Him. And we live today as though we can tell God what to do and what God ought to want us to do and how we ought to do it. He is Lord. And we are His slaves. Again, you've got to remove the bad connotations of the horrific things that were done for in, in American slavery. It's awful and we condemn those things. That's not what this is saying. But the English translations have watered it down so that you miss the force of it. You've got to understand that slaves are owned. We are owned by Jesus. Let me give you some verses. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says that knowing that you were ransomed, you were bought out of slavery, sinful slavery, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like with a lamb without spot or blemish. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You have been bought or purchased with a price. So glorify God in your body. Live your life in such a way that people know you don't belong to yourself anymore. You have died to self and live for Jesus. When you see verses like this today where he says, serve the Lord, it's not optional. He's saying you're a slave to Christ. He is master. You are the servant. Obey. Look for opportunities to love God and love your neighbor and take your loves and your talents and put them all together. And people will see a change in your life and they'll say, that guy, that girl's on fire for God. I want that. I want that. Slaves are submissive. Not only are they purchased, but they're submissive. In Luke 9.23, Jesus said, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow Me. So you get the idea. Serving isn't optional. We don't get to pick and choose about serving God. We are servants. Diakonos, a whole different Greek word, but we are doulos. We are slaves to our kurios, our master. It all ties in together. We have to serve because we have been purchased and we are here for that very purpose. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will. See how they tie together? You can't have one without the other. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist from probably a hundred or more years ago now, said that in his Bible, next to Isaiah 6.8, which says, Here am I, Lord, send me. He wrote these words. I think that we ought to consider writing these words in our Bible next to Isaiah 6.8 if we mean it. He says, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. That's a challenge for all of us, myself included today. If you love God and you love your neighbor, you have an opportunity to put those things into practice every day and show people something that they won't get in the world. A love unlike any other love. You can introduce him to somebody that's unlike anybody that's ever lived. His name is Jesus. And I want to introduce you to him today. If you've never met Christ, 
If you've never truly turned from your sins and looked to Him in faith, you can do that today. You can have a new relationship. He will change you and He will make you something different. Maybe you've done that, but you've never been obedient in the first step, which is baptism. Maybe you've never joined a church and served in labor. I don't know what your need is today, but I believe you do. So I'm going to invite the praise team to come. Phyllis and Tiffany are going to come this morning. And in just a moment, we're going to give an invitation. The invitation is just your opportunity to respond. Brother Pete responded a couple of weeks ago. He heard Jesus call, the call to come and receive life, and he said, I'm coming. And Jesus is still speaking. Jesus is still calling. Jesus is still saving, guys. The question is, will you listen to the call? And will you obey? Father, we thank you today that you still call and save sinners, that you still use us as imperfect as we are to do your work and to build your kingdom. Father, I pray today in this invitation that as you move among us, that we would respond, that we would hear that call and surrender to whatever area in our life we need to. And Lord, we will praise you and give thanks to you today for every decision that's made. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we stand and as we sing, don't wait, just step out. I'll pray with you. The altar's open. If you